0: I'm Steve Fisher. When he was in high school, Roe v. Brannan was told there was no future for him in higher education. Today, he holds a Ph.D. and is vice provost for the University of Washington Continuum College, overseeing all professional and continuing education programs. He knows the value of lifelong learning, and he's my guest on Life Slices. We're here today with Rovi Brannan.
1: Who is Rovi Brannan? Great question. I'll just jump in and say, you know, I'm a conundrum of conflicts. So, I'm I'm a guy who was told in high school, you're not college material. You should not even think about going to college. You should take shop classes. Unfortunately, I was not good in shop uh, either. <laughs> and now I am leader of an incredible unit at the University of Washington called Continuum College where we serve over 60,000 lifelong learners every year. I have my PhD. So interesting, even from the very beginning, you shouldn't go to college And now I have a PhD and I work at a university. I think, you know, I I believe in the power uh, and the transformative power of higher education. And I'm an example of that transformative power. And yet I also believe we're at a moment where higher education really has to change to begin to serve a broader and more diverse audience of people, not just in the US, but around the world. And and finally, my latest conundrum is that I am trying to figure out how I can be in the office with all the people I love to work with, and still enjoy the solitude and lack of commute that my home office offers. So I think like many of us, it's like, where do I work today? You know, I'd like to be with all my friends and colleagues, but boy, there's just something nice about waking up in your uh, slippers and grabbing a cup of coffee and going to work as well. So so a lot of, lot of things going on there, but uh, but it is a, uh, it's, it's a fun time. I keep myself entertained.
0: That's awesome. It's, uh, so you can't don't you're never gonna make it in college, but you will running a college. That's right. That's, that's right. There's a lesson there. You started in the business arena according to your profile. How does the world of academia compare?
1: Yeah, it's really interesting. Um so when I was told I, I should not think about college, what I did was started started my own business um right out of high school, installing telephone systems, working it was not too long after the breakup of the ATT. Uh, merger. It was maybe 10 years after that. And and so it was sort of a wide open field to start your own business in telecommunications. So at 18, 19, that was a lot of fun. Did that for a while. And you can imagine when you're in a startup like that, things move very quickly. You are focused on very pragmatic sorts of survival instincts. (laughs) Can I get enough business? Can I pay my employees? That sort of thing. And uh, and I think that uh, that's true regardless of where you are in business. It's a very fast-paced environment. You have a, a clear focus on your business mission and the bottom line. Both of those things have to be equally important at times in business. And I think when you move to higher education, I like to say you still have to we still have to do the business of higher education. We have to stay in business. We have to think about the financing and those sorts of things. But our focus is really on this mission of delivering education and creating new knowledge for the world. And so there's a very big difference in mission and approach to higher education than I think the business world has. But there's certainly a lot that we can learn from each other in the business world and the higher education world.
0: There seems to be a lot of continuing education programs out there. When did that whole concept of continuing education get started?
1: Yeah, great question. It's a lot older than most people realize. Really back in the 1850s in Cambridge, they began talking about the need to extend the disciplines to people who would not be full-time students, but would want to further their learning later in life. And, uh, and so that's one of the earliest examples of really thinking about continuing education. In this country, there was an explosion of these kinds of units, often called extension. The unit where I work, Continuum College at the University of Washington, started its existence in 1912 as the University of Washington Extension. And many universities around the country began launching these extension services at about the same time. Now, what else was going on in the United States, especially during that time, was it was an era of incredible populism where the old systems, the sort of industrial giants, if you will, were really being questioned by society, how much power they had accumulated by the use of these new industrial technologies. The elites were really becoming under a lot of heat and a lot of fire. And so in in that era research universities began to say, we need to begin to serve more of the community than just the elite leadership class. And that was really when extension units that later became often called continuing education units were formed in this country. And we've transformed ourselves about every decade or every other decade since that time over the last 100 years. So you might imagine we have some great pictures of the very first courses delivered via motorcycle At the University of Washington in about 1915. And somebody, you know, that was the old internet, right? You would actually take a motorcycle, deliver the correspondence course, bring it back, we would grade that, and we had people who would finish their college education that way. After World War II, evening degree programs for after the GI Bill and beginning to expand the capacity of universities to serve far more people than we ever served in in the past. And of course, more recently, our focus has been on the use of the internet, and other kinds of programs that we can now reach people with remotely and virtually. So really, we've looked at different ways of delivering education and different modalities over the history, about the last 100 and 120-year history of extended and continuing education.
0: Well, I'm guessing in the 1850s, online education was a bit difficult.
1: yeah the two tin cans and a wire was about the, about as far as that uh, would reach. The bandwidth was terrible.
0: That tr- yeah, how did you get into continuing education?
1: i was I was uh tricked into <laughs> going back to college by people at at, at, at community colleges, and you've got to be careful with people in community colleges because you'll start off there and suddenly realize you can do college work. And what's interesting to me is I was playing in a rock band playing so you know i I ran my business during the day and at night i played music a lot of heavy metal blues rock all kinds of different stuff but there was and i was in charlotte north carolina at the time and central piedmont community college one of the most incredible community colleges in the united states by the way folks know the the field they they really know that that place but they had a the musicians in charlotte knew that you could get free studio time in a 16 track studio by just taking a $25 per credit hour class in studio engineering. And that's much cheaper than going to a studio. So I enrolled in this audio engineering program to get free studio time for my band. And they did not tell you you had to do engineering for audio engineering, and that to do engineering, you needed to do math, which is why my high school tech counselor told me I should not go back to school was math, right? So, so I got tricked into the studio engineering program, began to figure out that with the right motivator, free studio time, I could do trigonometry. I could even do algebra in high school. I could do trigonometry. I could do stuff, calculus, all sorts of things to figure out the size of a room, which microphone to use in a particular given space. And I I began to realize I could do college level work. And so I was running my own business at the time, but there was a little recession that occurred in the early 90s, which is when this was. And I said, if I can do college level work, maybe this is the time I go back to school, go back to college. As an adult, I was in my mid to late 20s at that point. My son was born uh, in my sophomore year. So I really do understand what it's like to go back to school as a parent and have to work 40 to 50 to 60 hours a week try to fit in a full schedule of classes and make that happen. But that's how I got back into education after being outside the realm of higher ed and just kept going from that point forward. Your title is vice
0: provost, which which kind of threw me because the provost was the last name of a child actor who starred on a show Lassie and now going, (laughs) "What, what, what has he got to do with online education? But as a vice provost, to what degree are you involved with the development of the courses?
1: It depends, but usually I am usually helping to set up the development of the courses. And then we have a, a staff of about 200 people that works with our faculty on campus or instructors in the region to do the actual course uh, development. But it is funny what you're saying, because it just came up yesterday. Somebody asked me, what one of my own staff who was new, uh, new to higher ed, what exactly is a vice provost? Hey, I'm i embarrassed. I don't even know what that means. And I said, you know. I didn't know what a vice provost was until I accepted this job about eight years ago. All through graduate school, I don't think I could have ever told you what a vice provost was. And the simplest answer is, we are a vice president at the university, but over academic sorts of things. So I'm over the adult and continuing ed unit, but there are vice presidents that run things like IT and and the other service centers on campus. So we're kind of vice presidents for the academic side of the institution, for people who have ever wondered what a vice provost is.
0: I'm guessing that the development of online education, continuing education is a a bit different from everyday academic classes. How does that process of developing these programs differ?
1: There's several different ways. First of all, we do work with our faculty pretty extensively. And in those cases, we, we have about 100 at the University of Washington Continuum College, we have about 111 master's degree programs as a part of our portfolio of 400 programs. Those are pretty traditional, that faculty lead the classes, they run the classes, we may work with them if they happen to be online. Certainly, we've worked a lot the last two years to move some of those things uh, into online formats at least temporarily but the other part of our portfolio which is professionally focused we actually use non-faculty instructors usually we try to find people who are top people in their fields to come in and who are practitioners that come in and work with us mm-hmm. and in that case it is a very different kind of process where we are we have to provide a lot more support often to those folks because they've never taught before how do you develop a syllabus what's the right way to teach they may be experts in some form of engineering or IT or business but we have to help them become experts in teaching and learning so they can come into our classrooms and be able to work with students. So so there's some differences there in the way that we operate but we try to maintain the same high quality metrics for all of our for all of our programs in terms of uh, what's what's required by students to do that.
0: I was hired actually to teach a class at a university in southern california on screenwriting the first Class, I said, and this was in person, there was no online learning at the time, and it was in class. And the first class, I said, by the end of the semester, you will each have written a screenplay. And there was a gasp in the room, and by the next week, I lost half the class. So it's like, what kind of people generally go for continuing education?
1: Well, you know, I, I, I we would find that a little bit surprising. I mean, uh, all the people in my audio engineering class stuck with it, even though they had to do engineering before they got the free studio time. So, So I think there are some folks who might not be daunted by... Uh, by some of these kinds of things that we we unveil to them. But it really is a mix today. So I think this is part of what we what we're really seeing happen. I think historically, we might have said these are older learners at about the midpoint in their career. They might be coming back to retool to do something slightly different within their jobs. And today, we have camps for youth that are eight years old, And we have an Osher Lifelong Learning Institute with people in their 80s. So we like to say we're from 7 to 87 serving all of these people with different kinds of programming across different phases of their lives. And so you might imagine that's sort of a different kind of profile in terms of the way we Work with those students and how we how we educate them varies uh, pretty greatly. But there's a there's a lot of variation in terms of the populations that we serve, and that dictates a lot of how we do our work.
0: Is there a major difference other than the obvious between in classroom learning and online learning? Well, this is a
1: big question of the day, right? After a couple of years of remote learning for both K twelve and higher education in this country, most of us are coming out of that now and, and returning to the classroom. And I think we've learned a lot about what it means to think about online at scale versus online as a specialty, perhaps a subset of things that we do at the university. I like to say you either pay on the front end or you pay on the back end. When you're building online courses, there's a lot more work up front to structure the courses, to pre-record your lectures, to have all of the programming done, built, and ready to go. But the nice thing is once it's all there, as a professor, you don't have to be, you don't have to lecture for three hours every couple of weeks. You've got it all built and ready and you can focus on interaction with the students in online ways. Whereas face-to-face, I had a faculty member when I was in school tell me if you ever spend more than 30 minutes of preparation, and that should be between your office and the classroom on preparing to give a lecture, you've spent too long on it because you can work on the fly, but then you pay on the back end. So you've got all that work in the classroom because you, you do have to go through and do it in real time. So I think that's I think that's a distinct difference in terms of where they are. Obviously, the interaction is very different. That's been a big focus, I think, during the pandemic, especially is we've lost face-to-face in our face-to-face institutions. And our online infrastructures socially take more work to get the same kind of social interaction. Students are very creative, but we haven't done any official things that are beer parties online and things like that uh, with Zoom. Uh, so there's a there's a missing larger social context that you have with online learning when it has been like the last two years than you've had before. So so there's more work to make sure that you have the social components there. I like to tell folks we've spent billions of dollars on the social infrastructure of our physical universities. We haven't even begun to scratch the surface, I think, in online spaces for the same kind of social interaction needs for online. So that being said, Online programs and the research and the data have no significant difference in instructional outcomes to -to face-to-face programs, and that's been proven over 30, 40 years of research. So from an educational outcomes perspective, very little difference, but obviously a very different experience for the students and instructors going through those programs.
0: For most people, the thought of online anything, any kind of online meeting, conjures up the need for a beverage in your right hand, (laughs) what kind of people
1: will be served best by online learning? The older research talks a lot about people who have high levels of self-motivation. They are independent thinkers. They like to work independently. They may not need a lot of that social interaction. So during the Great Recession, a lot of online degree programs came online during that period uh, across the country, not just in the for-profits, but it's when the state institutions really began to get into online education. And we did, we did learn a lot during that time that adult learners who have full-time jobs are very goal-focused, right? They don't need all of the same tra- uh, trappings that the younger students do in terms of what they need. So historically, we would have said, An independent learner who doesn't need all of that social interactivity in the same way, doesn't need that context, they're going to be really well served. And by the way, it also is someone who may not be able to get access to the university in any other way if they don't live near a university. Obviously, that's someone who's going to benefit directly from an online experience. But now, I think over the last two years, I think we're going to have to find out. We don't know yet whether that profile is going to remain, because I think most people have gotten much better at working and socializing online. So I think the profile is going to start to shift away from that sort of traditional independent learner and toward most people will be learning online at some point during their lives, especially as we live longer and focus on the changes in society that are requiring us to retool all the time. Some of that learning is definitely going to be online. So I think it's going to get, we're all going to get more comfortable with it. But I would say today, those independent learners tend to have the better research outcomes than folks who really like a lot of social environments, uh, social activity around their environment.
0: Yes. If, we, if we've if we learned anything from the pandemic, it's that working remotely is so much better than going to an office for a lot of people. So why not learning? Why why should I have to go to a classroom if I can sit home on my computer and play with my dog at the same time? Although I'm, I'm guessing the playing with the dog is not a great idea.
1: Yeah, what's interesting though, but prior to the pandemic- one of the audiences that would tell us most often, I want to be in a face-to-face classroom would be audiences in our tech programming. So we're here in Seattle and you might imagine our neighbors are Microsoft and Amazon and, and uh, just lots of tech companies right around here. So we have a lot of their employees come to take our programs. And what they would say is, I'm on a computer all day. Can I please go sit with people and have a learning experience in person? So we're always cautious to say, different people need different kinds of learning experiences as they're moving through life. And sometimes it's just what what you have to have. But sometimes people make interesting choices when you might suspect, hey, the tech folks are definitely going to want to do the online courses. Sometimes they're the ones who most want to have uh, that social environment uh, to, to learn in.
0: Interesting. So for the technophobes, there's not a great deal of tech knowledge that you need to succeed with online learning. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I think that's true. I think 10 years ago it had have been very different. But today the software is much better. It's much more seamless Uh, You know, if you can get on your phone and and navigate your phone, you can get on an online course and navigate an online course.
0: America Online would have to change their logo from You Have Mail to You Have Homework. (laughs) That's right.
1: And I remember a day when You Have Mail was an exciting thing to hear, actually. That's right. Yeah. (laughs)
0: Now we just we take it for granted that it's going to be there. Is there a difference? When we're in high school and we're applying to colleges, we tend to look at certain colleges that have a reputation for particular types of study. Is that the same in continuing education programs?
1: Yes and no. So obviously everybody's looking for the program that they need that helps them do a little bit better, we find that especially at a university like Washington, which is a big global university, our undergraduates come from all over the world. So obviously, mostly here in Washington State, but we do draw a lot of -of out-of-state students, a lot of international students. And continuing education, the face-to-face part of continuing education tends to be more localized. So we're serving people in the local community more than the same broader community. Now, our online programming is obviously serving a global community. So we have both this hyper-local focus with what we're doing in person and face-to-face and taking advantage of the facilities that we have here on campus and around town. But we also see this increasingly international group of students that are joining us from around the world and in online formats. Is there a requirement
0: at the University of Washington that you must root for the Huskies?
1: Yes, Absolutely. Okay. And you must not root for the Cougars, which is the Washington State, you know, so. Where
0: all three of my kids went, so. <laughs> oh <Uh-oh. Uh-oh. laughs> That's a problem. They will not we're listen all- to this episode. <laughs> so-
1: we're, we're, we're all friends. In fact, I just met with my counterpart from Washington State, this week, and we're talking about how do we work together on programming across the state of Washington to help people find jobs and get back to work. So excited about that.
0: Is there a big difference in
1: programs from college to college? Yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think it, it's always uh, important to know for, for, a, for somebody who's looking for a program to really understand what you're trying to do, what you're trying to accomplish. Look at the universities, what kind of programming that they have. Most universities have some form of continuing education office. And if you're trying to go back to school as an adult, that's always a great place to start. Even if you're not going to take a program from that office, they usually have people who understand the busy lives of adults and can help you find the right program at their particular university. I think what's really Uh, exciting. At University of Washington, we have an immense breadth of programming, so over 400 programs. Many schools are more specialized, so they may have things that focus only in business entrepreneurship or engineering or some specialized field versus the breadth of what we have. So it does pay to look around, look at the websites of different universities. With online, you don't, as much as I hate to say this, even if you're in Seattle, you could take a course from Harvard or from UC Berkeley. We don't recommend that. We recommend uh, Washington courses for, for, for everybody. But but you can do that. Now, you can, as an adult learner, you can pick from courses from universities from around the world. And so the offerings are very different. The specialties are different. So it does pay to take some time and, and familiarize yourself with a couple of different places.
0: Can you get a degree with the online learning and continuing it? Or is it only certificates?
1: Absolutely. We have over 111 degree programs. Not all of those are fully online. So about seven or 18 are traditionally fully online. Again, the last two years notwithstanding, they've all had some form of remote learning the last couple of years. Those programs offer full master's degrees. We have two undergraduate degrees that are traditionally fully online undergraduate programs. So those are true degree programs. We have a lot of non-degree programs as well. Some of those do give you credit toward a degree. So there are some certificates that give you credit that will let you start earning a degree. There are some certificates that are really designed to be focused on earning a skill that you need right now for something in your job or something you're moving to and you don't really have an intent to go transfer that into a degree program. It is a great question to ask if you're thinking about a certificate program. Does this certificate have the ability to transfer or translate into a degree? Because some do and some are built to help you move into a degree and some are really built to be very focused on helping you just move forward one step in your career or in in something in life you want to accomplish.
0: You talked about the breadth of courses and programs. Can you give us an idea of the range, like some of the courses you might expect to courses you wouldn't expect?
1: Uh, Well, I was delighted to see at the University of Washington, and I didn't expect this, that we have an audio production program. So for my history, I was delighted to see that we have that and we have some Emmy-nominated folks who teach you. And in fact, we have a student who was nominated for a major Hollywood award just recently for his audio engineering work that he did on a television program. And so so that one's kind of surprising to me. We have lots in the tech realm, you might imagine. So teaching programming languages, data science. I have 21 different programs offered through our unit with the word data. And the title. So data science, data visualization, uh, data engineering, their degrees in data, there are certificates in data. So those are these are very hot fields that you might expect to see a lot of programs in. One of our most highly enrolled programs that people really love doesn't really have to do with careers. Well, for some people it might be a career, but memoir writing. So we have some great folks who teach people how to write their memoirs. Some people really this is their fourth act career as they're thinking about retirement they say I'm going to get really serious about writing memoirs and they pull this together we've had I think just last year four published sets of memoirs from people who took this course so that's a very unusual one that we have sitting there but it is one of the most robust communities of learners that work together we have programs in fundraising and nonprofit management and just this it's a, it's a huge gamut of what people can do without Having to think about, I need to commit to two to three to four years to earn a degree. In nine months, people can take one of these programs and really retool and move into a new kind of career. So they really run the gamut. I love looking through our catalog myself and thinking, gosh, if I had the time, I want to go back and enroll in some of the courses and programs that we have because they're just, they're fantastic.
0: You talked about, you had a a student who was
1: nominated for an award nominated or won? Uh, I don't have the end to that story. So I know they were okay. nominated for <laughs> a major industry award, and but I, I, I don't have the information in front of me for that, for that particular student.
0: Very often with any college, you hear about the celebrities or named individual, noted individuals who went to that school. It's a point of pride. Do you have that? Has continuing head been around long enough
1: to have that? Typically, a lot of those stories come from your advancement teams or your philanthropic teams that gather all of those. My unit is actually fully self-sustaining. And so we do not have a philanthropic arm. Now we are beginning to develop that because we're beginning to realize many of our programs are becoming life changers for people who don't have the money to go back to school. And so I think that's changing this idea that we self-sustain entirely off the fees from our students. So we don't have any really famous people But we have many, many remarkable people. And on our website are some of the most incredible stories. It doesn't matter that these folks aren't famous. You go hear from a guy who's tending bar, listening to folks from Microsoft talk about their hotshot programming jobs and saying, I could learn how to do this too. And self-teaching himself how to program just enough that he could get into our certificate program as a single father and now become a project manager and a senior project manager on his way. Those stories are on our website. To me, those are the real heroes. We, I, I don't need famous people if I've got folks like that singing our praises because those, those are the kinds of everyday stories that we really do like to hear. What I will say is continuing that has become so ubiquitous that there's so many people that have taken programs, but it's not a traditional degree program. They might just take a single course or a single session that we have as an event. And so that's how, that's another way that continuing it is very different from the traditional university because we have learners that drop in for a shorter period of time. They get what they need as an adult learner and they take that back to their lives. And so we've had a number of people pass through our doors that just come to a seminar or come to an event that we put on, but we don't tend to capture them and put their stories up on the web in the same way as the rest of the university. So uh, something we can learn from perhaps.
0: One of the problems with higher ed that we hear about all the time is the cost. How does the cost of continuing ed compare? And can people, are there scholarships?
1: There are scholarships. And and if you think about the broad range, so when I talk about degree programs, there are degree programs that cost about the same as other master's degree programs or undergraduate degree programs. So there's, at the degree level, the costs are roughly uh, the same for the kinds of programs that they have. Non-degree, non-credit programs tend to be much less expensive. And this is where we do have those practitioners who are working from the field, teaching people uh, specific skills. They tend to be less expensive. Again, as I mentioned earlier, they don't necessarily give you college credit, but they give you the skills you need. and a, and a good marker on your resume that you have a credential in a specific area to be able to go into that space. So I think that's a critical thing to keep in mind, good questions to ask for sure.
0: You mentioned, and we've talked about how many continuing ed programs there are all around the world. What should people look for?
1: Other than UW and, you know, purple, You need it needs to be purple <laughs> and gold. And uh, if you have those three things, you're in good shape. First of all, there, there are uh, tremendous, uh, many of my colleagues around the Country just do incredible work. I just, I'm the immediate past president of the University Professional and Continuing Education Association. So I've had over the last three years the opportunity to really see across the entire United States and the spectrum of programs and things that that are being offered. There are a few things that we'd look for if I were a student. First of all, does your university have an adult and continuing education office? And uh, are they clearly accessible on the web? So if you find it very hard to figure out how to contact them, that may be a little bit of a warning sign. But when you do contact, Folks, for example, at the University of Washington, we have developed now what we call an enrollment coaching team. And as I mentioned earlier, we have 21 programs with the word data in the title. How do you even know which program to take? So so units that have folks who can actually help coach you on the right next step in your career tend to be the ones that have the bigger They have a lot of programming. They have a lot of experience with adult learners. So look at that coaching as an important component, uh, the upfront coaching as you're coming into the programs. You might also ask about whether there is a career coaching aspect on the back end of those programs. So the program itself is going to be wonderful. You might want to ask some questions about that. But a lot of the content can be very similar. So ask a lot about those wraparound services. Uh, ask about support services post the program uh, ending, what's available to you as a student, and then whether there are other programs that that program will let you move into or connect to later in your career. So those are some really important questions that I would ask as an adult learner if I was going to go back and look at continuing education. Rovi,
0: is there anything about yourself or about continuing education that I haven't asked about that you would like to answer?
1: Uh, there could be hours on this on this topic. First of all, I, I would just say I, I think that we're one of the things that I find amazing is our 18 year olds have a better than 50% chance to live past the age of 100. That's an astounding fact. So as my colleagues at the London School of Economics, uh, Grattan and Scott would say, that means they're going to need to work for 60 years from 25 to 85. They will most likely be working. Now they're going to be very healthy until they're over hundred. So life is very different, but retooling and re-educating yourself if you have a if you're a parent of small children, if you have someone about to enter college, if you're about to graduate from college, you need to realize that this is no longer an end point in your life that continuing education is going to be essential to be able to participate in a very long life and you could see how fast things are changing now technologically. You can imagine a 60 year look back 60 years ago and look at today and now realize that we are in an accelerated environment as we move forward. Lifelong learning and continuing education are gonna be essential components in the world as we move forward today. Don't be afraid of calling your university, even if you haven't been there in a while, even if you've never been there and you're an adult. Folks like me wanna hear from you. We wanna help you find a path because it's going to be critical for everyone to be able to retool and reeducate over this very healthy long life that we'll all be living through in the future. And where
0: can people find your continuing education program?
1: You can find a Continuum College at continuum.uw.edu. And,
0: and I shouldn't say this, but UW is a great school.
1: <laughs> I'll take that as the greatest compliment coming from a <laughs> Coug family for sure. <laughs> Thank
0: you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. And I hope people will go out, check out uh, Continuing Ed wherever they can find it.
1: Thank you, Steve. Really enjoyed it. Thank you.
0: If you enjoyed this program, please subscribe and like us on social media and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Life Slices is produced by Beatnik Ravens Productions, all rights reserved. Music courtesy of Fesleyan Studios.